Hello, climate activists. Welcome to another episode of Sunrise El Paso Media. Today's topic is the Green New Deal on a city level. Our guest is Lin Wang. Lin is a hub coordinator for Sunrise Los Angeles. She's also a writer, an environmental scientist, and an opera singer. Sunrise Los Angeles has done some amazing work to pass Green New Deal legislation in their own city government. And today, we're going to learn a little bit from their experience. So, Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Yeah, well, um, I guess we can go right into uh, the questions that we have prepared. Um, first one is this idea that You know, the climate crisis requires such drastic government action, and many of us feel hopeless in this day and age of Trump and climate change denialism. So, mm -hmm. so, so when this denialism is so pervasive in our federal government, what do you think is the role of local municipal governments, like city governments of Los Angeles or El Paso? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I think that one of the things that even just kind of underlied Sunrise um, just was this idea that, you know, Trump being in the federal government kind of changes a lot of things for us. And um, I think cities are great places where we can really model the alternative, um, especially in L.A. There's like this little mythology that says, you know, where L.A. goes, the country follows. Um, this can be like positive or negative. Like, I think we've heard certain things about um, car emissions and how California legislation really set the tone for nationwide car regulations. Um, but the same also goes, for instance, for militarized policing. Like, that started in L.A. That has been exported to the rest of the country. Um, I think what that really shows us is that municipal, like, cities are a great place to test out really bold, un unprecedented policies and to use that as kind of the vanguard to push us forward. Um, so cities can enact local change much more quickly, and they're also responsible for key climate sectors, right? So we're talking transit, we're talking housing, buildings, zoning, land use. Like these are all things that even though they don't directly have to deal with, for instance, the fossil fuel industry um, or federal regulations, like we can still enact a great deal of change and really make, uh, really change the game, I think, for frontline communities as well. So the impact of cities, I think, really cannot be understated. Yeah, I think I think that's a very important point that you make because it's it's empowering in in a way, you know. Oh, definitely. To, to feel to to understand that, and especially to look at the precedent that Los Angeles has made in in this regard. Um, so, as you know, earlier this year, as part of his sustainable city plan refresh, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti released his proposal for what he calls a Los Angeles Green New Deal, right? And so what, in your, in, in your opinion, what are the positive aspects of his plan and what can the city of El Paso learn from this? Uh, his plan sounds good. I think that's about all I can really say about it. I mean, like Garcetti talks a big game <laughs> and uh, his love for rhetoric, I think really, really shines through in the plan. 
um, there was some like really, really hilariously vague wording in it that I, um, that I looked at and I laughed at at the time and I like save, I don't know if I have it now, but some of the good things that were in there were electric buses and electrified buildings. Um, but even those are kind of like slated to be too late. Right. So, but that's pretty much it. Like one good thing I can say that Garcetti's done has been like bringing on an arborist to direct urban forestry. I definitely think that's, um, important to like more, you know, deliberately put green in the city. Um, because like the previous mayor had an initiative to plant a, what, a 1 million trees in LA, but that in itself is not quite enough to yield productive results. And that program ended up being a disaster. So it is nice to see that Garcetti is at least consulting, you know, professional arborists on the urban forestry in terms of the sustainable plan itself though. Like I, you know, we weren't super impressed. Yeah, I'm that that's totally fair. And um so yeah, that le- that leads me to to an article that that I read about about this what Sunrise thought of this plan and uh Sunrise LA published a press release saying that quote with Mayor Garcetti's current plan for net zero emissions by 2050, Los Angeles is on track to being 20 years too late. That quote, that is not a Green New Deal. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit uh, about why the 2030 postmark is so important. Yeah, sure. I mean, well, this is something that maybe a lot of us know, but in November of last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released their report that said that 12 years is the benchmark for irreversible catastrophic damage to our earth and natural systems basically saying that if we don't get our shit together in 12 years um we may see changes that we may, we, we may lose things that we will never get back right okay. um yeah and that timeline just keeps getting bumped up because of the catastrophic things things that i like to call catastrophic feedback loops right like the Greenland glacier collapsing, like the Amazon forest burning, like the Siberian permafrost melting. These are things that just accelerate, um, just really accelerate the timeline that these models have given us. And we really, we really have less time than we think we do, right? So even if our benchmark is 12 years, um, in order for us to have net zero carbon by then, we have to act now. Like these systems have to be put in place now, right? 2050 pushes the timeline back by an unacceptable degree. It gives us wiggle room that we really and truly do not have. And when and when our future is so unpredictable, like time is not on our side. And whenever something changes in the timeline, it's always going to be to move the timeline up. And so pushing the timeline back to 2050 takes away that urgency that is truly needed for us to enact the kinds of changes that we need it takes away the crisis factor and that's what we really need to take opportunities here and really go for a just transition that that's exactly well put um and just to add add to that you know the 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 2050 the 2050 benchmark is very common in 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 a lot of governments um in in new mexico uh, the governor passed a energy transition act that is really impressive in the sense that it calls for for a transition to renewable energies and by but it says that we should do this by 2045 and one of the drawbacks from a benchmark being so 
so delayed is that the government is planning to use natural gas as a quote like as a transition method right and and that's what right. like a lot of governments are using natural mm-hmm. gases like and fracking as a as a transition period in for to do this mm. this decades long um transition but yeah like you said if if we have the factor of urgency it it's not justified to use um natural gas as a transition energy you know um so so go that's a great point. yeah going yeah, back that's a great point like natural gas has kind of become natural gas has kind of become like the new form of climate denialism because it's still a fossil fuel and i mean all of these pipeline fights that we see with like indigenous people all come out of our demand for natural gas as well so even though yeah even though it gets marketed as this just transition it's it's really the opposite it, it's like a band-aid you know exactly yeah so but but nonetheless like you said it it's it's still a positive aspect that city governments like LA and and um the state of New Mexico are like at least trying to do this that's year, that's years away from where the state of Texas is you know and right. so so beside the going back to to Mary Garcetti's green new deal quote his green new deal besides the the 2030 time frame um how else can can mayor garcetti's green new deal improve you know is is this plan intersectional meaning that it addresses economic social and racial justice as well as environmental justice and you know how how else right yeah i mean i think garcetti like like i said he does talk a big game like he does like know know how to talk um But I really think this plan needs to adopt the substance and make hard choices that will generate, you know, real results. Uh, one thing that I noticed was like very apt was like very conspicuously absent in his plan was any talk of unions. Um, so I really want, you know, an improved Garcetti Green New Deal to explicitly guarantee union jobs. Um, Garcetti talks about like labor organizing, but he doesn't talk about unions, you know, and that is certainly a problem, right? We need to push for real limits on harmful activities as well. Like if you look at his sections for air pollution and you look at kind of like the t- benchmarks he's put down, all of those are for establishing monitoring systems and doing monitoring. But the communities don't need monitoring. Like, I mean, monitoring should have happened eight years ago, right? Now we need things to stop. We need neighborhood drilling to stop. And the plan right now does not make room for that. Um, another thing that the green, the plan could really do is make it easier to produce food in the city. Um, not just farming, but like livestock, you know, urban forests with food bearing trees, like all of these things are really, really crucial to getting the city to decarbonize because what it does is it allows us to be more, more self-sufficient based on resources within the borders of the city. Um, and that's also just super important for like, you know, disaster resiliency, but Like, there's these big changes that need to happen in order for a food system in L.A. to really take off. Um, and that's another land issue, right? Like, real estate is so contentious in L.A. Um, like, real estate interests dominating city government, I think, is another big thing we have to contend with. You know, when we're talking about setting aside land for green jobs, setting aside land for a green economy, 
Like that is one of the big things that stands in our way. So it would be great for Garcetti to really just like lay, you know, take a side, right? And it's going to make people mad, but it will generate real results. Like car culture in LA, you know, if the Green New Deal could really challenge car infrastructure in this city and really move towards encouraging buses and biking and walking and walkability, that would also be a huge step. But all of these things are kind of missing right now. But in terms of concrete changes, those are definitely things I would like to see. Awesome. Yeah, that, that that's a really interesting framework. And I feel like a lot of um, establishment politicians don't understand the merit of that, right? Because, you know, a lot of young people, and especially Sunrise, understands that we need this solution to be comprehensive and not just not just band-aid solutions like you said so yeah I, those are really important points um but you know either way despite its drawbacks i think the his garcetti's green new deal is nonetheless an inspiring example to to other organizers um in the sense that we can see that climate justice at least in theory can be achievable at the local level you know so so what were the organizing strategies that sunrise la and other organizations took to make this happen what were your challenges and who were your allies mm. yeah i think it's definitely important to mention that like you know we were walking into a crowded field here right like Lots of people have been doing this work since before, you know, Sunrise even was a thing. And we really, like, one of our big allies was Food and Water Action. Like, they kind of really helped our hub get off the ground, and they've really been helping us um, and just kind of helping us understand, like, how to navigate city politics. Um, I think one of the things that definitely helped is that, you know, L.A. is ostensibly a liberal city, right? So, and Garcetti has made like campaign promises based on climate in the past. So those were kind of things we had going for us already. Another thing that really, really helped us to win the things that we have has just been the fact that our utilities are owned by the public. LA, LA Department of Water and Power, Glendale Water and Power, um, these are public utilities. And because their board members are you know, accountable to the public, we were able to use public pressure to shut down gas-powered plants, you know, kill a new, um, in Glendale, we were able to stop the addition of new natural gas to, to this, um, power plant from like World War II. And that was really huge. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, um, the public utility is definitely, and I really think that for cities where the utility is privately owned, like public, like pushing for municipalization is really, really key because, it really gets people to understand like the energy economy, give them a stake. And like, once you have a public utility, there's so much that you can do as a grassroots organization. Um, another ally that I definitely want to give a shout out to is stand LA. That's the uh, stand together against neighborhood drilling. And they're just this incredible, incredible grassroots organization that's been campaigning um, on oil drilling in Los Angeles because, well, one thing that people don't really know about LA is that there is just oil drilling happening in all of the neighborhoods around here. People live right next to oil drills. And so Stand LA has been doing a great job of just highlighting the public health concerns, putting pressure on politicians, 
Um, and that has really helped us as well. Um, like really the thing that helped make this more than anything was just the fact that we have a coalition of people who are really pushing on different aspects of all of this. So certain demands in a certain shape and form did make it into Garcetti's Green New Deal. And that wouldn't have happened without, without those allies. So, yeah. Awesome. And, and what, what did you see as the biggest challenge for, for you all? I really think it's recognizing that like once, you know, it is really great that, right. That like we could get Garcetti to adopt our language of a green new deal. I think that's really powerful when you can get people to adopt your talking points. But I think once you get to that point, if someone adopts your language, but they don't adopt your substance, that kind of puts you, I think in a weird place because then it kind of feels like it's been co-opted a little bit. And instead of saying like, you know, we need a green new deal. Like we actually kind of have to go around, you know, we need a green new deal is great to organize around, but, Oh, you know, this green new deal could be like, we have a green new deal in LA, but it could be improved is not quite as galvanizing. I feel like. And, Mm. um, the fact that Garcetti's green new deal, um, doesn't mention unions at all has also made it a good target for, you know, like labor, labor unions who fear, you know, losing their jobs, losing their unions, um, that weakness in labor language has made it difficult. And I think complicated our efforts to really reach out to labor unions and kind of like come together with a coherent, you know, shared agenda. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, the green new deal in LA is kind of a blessing and a curse. So I think it's really important for us in our own cities, just kind of like think about, just think about what's going on like with our politics like and think about that kind of context um and the idea that this kind of like plan is just kind of a first step wow yeah that 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 is true i I could imagine that's kind of like an awkward spot to be in at when when your language is basically co-opted but um Mm -hmm. yeah that's a really important point um so yeah, I, you know, we as Sunrise El Paso look to learn from from other more experienced hubs like like Sunrise LA, and mm-hmm. you know we we want to learn from the great progress that you have you all have done, and I just wanted to ask what advice you have for a younger Sunrise hub like El Paso. Um, I really think that. One thing that I really realized, you know, organizing in LA is that every city has this has this energy that they bring to the movement that is absolutely crucial. You know, you don't have to be a big city or a city where there's been a long history of organizing in order to really have an impact. Like if we think about Ferguson, for example, you know, that was not a city where there was like a huge amount of, you know, activist or left-wing activity before, but you know, people were really able to claim their power. So like, you know, like not to underestimate yourselves, right? Um, The other thing that I think is really important is just remembering that, you know, your work is based on relationships, you know, not just with other organizations, but also with each other. Um, And also just recognizing everyone has something unique to bring to this movement. And part of the work is figuring out, helping your people figure out what that is. Um, And just recognizing the unique opportunities. Like I really see El Paso as a border town 
as a place for us to really enact like a left-wing environmental policy with regard to the border. Um, and I think that would be really, really powerful that could be pulled off because then, you know, just for so many different reasons, right? Um, yeah, I think it really comes down to just like believing in your message and like believing in the place that you are in at that moment, right? Like there's, it's like something I read once that said like, if you have a meeting and six people show up, uh, don't be disappointed that only six people showed up because those people are the leaders that you've been waiting for. And when you approach the organizing that way, some really, really amazing things happen. So yeah, like we always have to lean into the fact that people would not come to our events if they were not like down to make a change, like down to put their lives into the struggle and to really embrace that, have faith in that. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. Um, and <clears throat> you know, you, you mentioned the, the opportunity that, that El Paso has, um, uh, being a border town, uh, and being a, a city that is ma majority of us are, are Hispanic Chicanx, you know? So mm -hmm. I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between immigration and, and immigration justice to climate justice. You wrote a piece called the great green wall for, for, yeah. Yeah, and, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the big um, the big thing that I think we need to understand is that, you know, there is a certain thing we say where we say, oh, you know, Republicans don't have a climate plan. The right doesn't have a climate plan, but they do. The wall is the climate plan. These camps are the climate plan. Um, I think it's a mistake to assume that just because the right wing has not like openly acknowledged climate change that they don't recognize what climate refugees will do to their bottom line and what opening the borders will do to you know the world they inhabit and like we should understand the border wall you know and metering and all of these things at the border as right wing climate policy so when we look at things through that lens we recognize that it is actually imperative to have a humane border policy because these climate refugees are going to keep coming. Like this is not going to stop. And if this is how we're treating them now, when, you know, climate crisis is at its relevant, relative early stage, like who knows what's going to happen when a huge catastrophe displaces an entire country of people, right? Like this is only going to get bigger. So I think that's like the first, first big thing. And the second thing as well is just, and I mentioned, this in the article too is just that you know when it comes to criminalization um it's really important to know who your friends are because when the government begins to criminalize activists and certain types of activism that is a very very isolating thing and you know right now i think sunrise is in a position where you know people like them a lot they have a lot of public support and a lot of people who are willing to work with us but whether or not we are branded, I think, as enemies of the state, is not really up to us. And when that kind of happens, we do need allies that kind of know what it's like to be in that space. And I think when you're working in immigration, like criminalization is not just something in the horizon. It's just a reality of how you're working. Like you're working with undocumented people. These people are inherently 
um, inherently criminalized, right? So how do we how do we continue to function as a movement when the state is hovering over our heads? Like we've already seen, you know, there's you know surveillance of pipeline protesters and things like that. We really need to think about whether or not this is a possibility, you know. And I think a great way to kind of prepare uh, mentally for that is to ally with immigration justice. Um, it really, I think, boils down, though, to the fact that, like, borders are inhumane. Like, whenever we've instituted borders in our lives and our society, they've disrupted natural cycles. They've disrupted, <clears throat> you know, our, like, indigenous ways of life. Um, and they are really this colonialist, destructive construct. And we're really starting to see how that just makes our problems worse when you're really in a climate crisis. So it's just so important, I think, for us to recognize those connections. Um, because once we do and we start drawing conclusions, we can kind of see how all of these things are connected. That, that, that is a very important perspective that I think all, all border towns and, and communities that you know, have a large percentage of people of color, I think we need to realize this. Um, because I think this is how our, you know, our Democratic Party has has failed us in this way that we don't talk we don't talk about this in the perspective that you just mentioned, you know, um, right. And so I, you're. You, I mean, right, the other. No, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I mean, the other thing that I think is really interesting to tack on to is I think you know the historical element of it, like um, Cambodian and Vietnamese refugees are some of our one of the populations that is really being affected by deportations right now. Um, but we think of Cambodia and we think of Vietnam and these are countries that were ruined environmentally, politically, and socially, um, by the U S army in pursuit, you know, of this system that we all live in. And now Cambodian refugees being victimized by immigration, I think just shows that like environmental justice injustice has taken so many different forms over the years and just it always swings back and victimizes the same people and it's just hard to look at the example of Cambodian refugees being deported without thinking about that um and it really like yeah I know that that, that bugs me a lot I I would also draw the same connection with all of our Central American brothers and sisters that are that are that are crossing the border right because they they have been victim to the united states foreign policy and 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 militarism um and yeah that's it's a great point that you that you mentioned which is we need to look at this through a historical lens like you said um mm -hmm. that's a really good point well we, yeah and no, go ahead on what you were going to say. Oh, no, yeah, no, it, it's really important for us to remember because when we think of these things in a vacuum, we do come up with, like, our perspective is incomplete. Exactly, sure. yeah. And mm -hmm. and for all the, the listeners, um, this might seem tangent, like a tangent that we just went on off of, but I think it all comes down to to the very essence of the Green New Deal, right? Which is we can't look at this through a historical vacuum and and we can't solve the climate crisis um without understanding these the way that 
the climate crisis in, intersects with with immigration justice. So, so uh-huh. yeah, I, I I appreciate your your take on that, Lynn, and and you know we we invite listeners to to be open to this broader perspective of climate justice. And yeah, it all it all goes down to 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 how this affects your community personally. I didn't know about the the Vietnamese and Cambodian issue in 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 Los Angeles and here we see a lot of Central American uh, immigrants, uh, migrants from Africa, from all over, um, and yeah, I, I appreciate that that perspective, Lynn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for making space for that perspective as well. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, is is there anything else you'd like to yeah. to add f- for this discussion? I'm I'm about out of questions, so. What is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I don't know. I think we just about covered it. Yeah. All yeah, right. I, I think the only thing I would say is like, you know, we really need to grasp it at grasp things at the root and think about not, not just like not just like what's the baseline. I think some some people are, are are approaching this problem maybe like looking at certain things in society and taking them for granted, but I think nothing in our current system can be taken for granted. I think we should be willing to really question every bit of it and like really question like whether or not these precedents and these systems um, really reflect like who we are, who we're, what we're destined to be, or what we deserve. Um, so I think it's really important to just like look at those old, old logics and really like not build off them, but replace them with new ones. Like this is the time to do that. And nature's on our side. So. Yeah. I think, I think those are powerful words to, to finish yeah. off with. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I look forward to, to continuing the struggle and, and, continue to create solidarity between sunrise hubs and you know to learn from mm-hmm. each other and, and grow together uh because this isn't this is a national crisis but in many ways uh we have to work and we have to create progress within our own backyard so so lynn Definitely. yeah i i appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and yeah thank you great Yeah, thank you for having me on. It's great talking to you. All right. Well, this concludes this episode. And as always, we continue to look for important local topics of environmental justice. Keep, stay tuned for for more episodes. And yep, keep fighting.